Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 3, what Paul was reading for us earlier. Sort of a different study this morning that deals with the genealogies and why Matthew has one and why Luke has a completely different one. So let's pick it up in Luke chapter 3, looking at verse 23. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, and now in parentheses, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now down to verse 31, uh, the continuation of the genealogy, the son of Meliah, the son of Menan, the son of Mathathiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Uh, so we'll trace it back here to David. As we begin the Gospel of Luke, we're going to notice that the genealogy of Luke is different than the genealogy of Matthew. I had somebody um, stop me and uh, um, talk to me about this. He was just witnessing to another um, not witnessing, they were um, talking about Bible-based churches versus, I won't mention the denominations, except to say that they believe that there's many different ways you can get to heaven. And he says, well, the, the scriptures contradict that. He says, well, the scriptures are filled with error. For example, you have two different genealogies, one in Matthew and one in Luke. So he stopped me this morning and he says, I'm so glad that you gave this message because this explains why there has to be two genealogies. There is a reason for it. So as we begin the Gospel of Luke, we will notice that the genealogy of Luke is different than the genealogy of Matthew. Let's go over to Matthew's. Um, chapter one, we'll read the first seven verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zaar by Tamar, uh, Perez by Hezron and Hezron by Ram. Ram begot Aminadab and Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Solomon, Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. Now, David the king begot Solomon by he who had been the wife of Uriah. I'm just going to stop here because this is where we're going to part paths. When we read um, Mary's genealogy, um, we get to David. And remember David's first son with Bathsheba, the Lord took that child. The second one was Solomon um, that uh, David and Bathsheba had. But the third son was Nathan. So now David's first son, if you say he's Solomon, and his second son was Nathan. Well, Matthew's account goes from if you look at verse 17, it begins with Abraham. Verse 17, so the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Um, and 14 generations from David until the captivity in Babylon. And 14 generations from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So once we get to Solomon and Matthew's account, what we do is we follow the line 
of Solomon. And, um, but when we get to Mary's account, it doesn't run through Solomon, but it runs through the second son, which his name was Nathan. Now, Luke's account is from Adam to Mary. Joseph's name is listed to Jesus, and it goes through David's second son, as I just said, Nathan. Um, The genealogies are similar, but it's an interesting fact uh, is found that the line of Joseph had a blood curse that was placed on it following Solomon's line, but not Nathan's line. The blood curse was placed on a man named um, Jeconiah. He's known by other names like Jehoiachin and also Kaniah. So he's got three names, but it's all the same guy. Everybody with me so far? Okay, so we have a split, but there's a necessity for the split because if you follow Solomon's line, there was a blood curse on this particular lineage. Now this is significant, and I want to take you back to it, so let's go to Jeremiah chapter 22, and I'll introduce you to this man. The kings of, um, after Solomon, of course, Rehoboam came to power, and they would have ruled over Benjamin and Judah, the two tribes in the south. Um, that Jeroboam would have been uh, the first king of the ten northern tribes that we often call Israel. Now, of all the kings of the northern, there wasn't one good one of the ten northern kingdoms. And of the 19 or 20 that were over Benjamin and Judah, uh, there were only eight or nine. The last good one in the south, which would have been Judah and Benjamin, would have been uh, Josiah. Now, if you're looking at chapter 22, which I encourage you to follow along to make sure that I'm telling you the truth here. Uh, verse 24, it's message against Coniah, and then in parentheses in my Bible it says Jehoiachin. I'm reading verse 24. He was an evil king. He says, as I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those who face your your fear, uh, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. Now, uh, they're synonymous, they're the same. Babylon, if it says Babylon, it's the same as saying the Chaldeans. So, I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, And there you shall die, but to the land which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper, 
in his days. For none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Here the Lord put a curse on him so that none of his children, descendants, would ascend to the throne of David. Now if you follow it back, this is the one that went through Solomon. But it didn't go through Nathan. And so there's a necessity for these two genealogies. Jesus' birth was from Mary, a virgin, not Joseph. Jesus was not from the line of Jeconiah. Uh, the blood curse that would have disqualified him uh, from the legal right to rule as king of Judah. So um, it had to go through Mary's line, through Nathan, and it was through Mary's genealogy that Jesus had the birthright that goes back through Nathan and not Solomon. Everybody with me so far? Good. Now this supports, of course, the virgin birth. Uh, which was foretold, if you're taking notes, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, this opens up a big question about the nature of our creator and also begs the question, does God actually curse people and this earth. And um, my wife told me I got it wrong the first service. The answer to that is yes. We were um, finishing up uh, last Wednesday in the Gospel of of Mark. If you just want to flip over to Mark chapter 11. I said Mark chapter 12, but it's uh, chapter 11. The cursing of the fig tree. The day before, the Lord was hungry, and as he was going into Jerusalem, he comes upon a tree, and there's no figs on it. And um, so he cursed it, and now they're walking back the next day, and if you look at verse um, 11, verse 20, Mark Dwight, not Matthew, (laughs) Mark 11, Verse 20, it says, Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up by the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree which you cursed has withered away. And so here we have, um, we just touched on this on on, uh, last Wednesday, going chapter by chapter and verse by verse, that the Lord did curse this tree. And they marveled that it withered up so quickly it only took a day. So blessings and cursings and working this Bible study into uh, anti-Semitism, what's going on in the world today, um, and our reaction and our feelings towards the nation of Israel and Jewish people in particular is a big part of this message this morning. But for um, starters, let's go to Deuteronomy, one of the five books of Moses, 
Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. And we're just going to read the first three verses there. Deuteronomy 28 is divided into two sections. The first half, verses 1 through 14, deal with if you do this, you're going to get blessed. Beginning with verse 15, if you don't, then curses are going to come upon you. Let's pick it up in verse 1, Deuteronomy 28. Now it will come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed will be your city and blessed shall be you in the country. Skip over to verse 15 where it tells us, but it will come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be you in the city and cursed shall be you in the country. Cursed shall be you in the basket and in the kneading bowl. Deuteronomy um, is saying that if they keep the ways of the Lord, that um, they'd be blessed, and if they don't, they'd be cursed. Let me get sidetracked here a little bit. I got a little bit more time in a, in a second service. I think it's applicable to us um, in honoring the ways of the Lord or dishonoring the ways of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 18, he says, now look, when you guys come into the land, you shall not learn to do like the heathens in that land did. Um, You shall not cause your son or your daughter to pass through the fire. It was offering their children to Moloch. And it's graphic, but I'm gonna share it anyway, how they did it. They'd actually take their children and they would heat this uh, metal god's arms up so that the child would actually die burning to death. And uh, you think about it, it's, it's, it's appalling. And he says, because of these things, I'm gonna judge that people and drive them out of the land, but make sure you don't follow after them. Well, I looked it up this morning, the date. It was January 22nd, last month, when New York City passed the most extreme abortion um, laws ever, where they're basically able to take a child's life even right before the child is born. And I have to sit and wonder, because God is a just God, if he warned his people, be careful that you don't do some of these things, sorcery, witchcraft, mediums, familiar spirits, and um, offering your children, and having no respect for an innocent, helpless child. My question is, how long is the Lord gonna put up with that before he brings a curse upon our own our own country, and um, Virginia is right behind. Uh, they're cleaning house as we speak, and um, you guys see what's going on. It's not getting 
better and better in the world in which we live. Good place for an amen. Actuality is getting worse and worse. Should we be surprised? Absolutely not. My Bible says in the last days there will be a falling away. And the days, these are the beginnings of sorrows. And um, this is not your best life now. Unless you're going to hell. Then this is your best life now. But your best life now is not here. Matter of fact, it says for the believer, this is not your best life now, but it's going to be difficult, narrow, and there'll be a falling away from sound doctrine. People won't want to hear an in-depth Bible study, especially one called the blood curse. But tell me something that's going to make me feel good and uh, that that's going to... Um, just tell me what I want to hear. That's what the Bible says. They'll gravitate towards teachers who have what they call itching ears, basically saying, telling you what you want to hear. As if the Bible was about you, or whether the Bible was about me. The Bible's not about you, and the Bible's not about me. The volume of the book is about Jesus Christ. From Genesis, the first prophecy that I'm going to take you to is about Jesus and the last thing the Bible says is, even so, come Lord Jesus. Now there's stuff about you and me in there, like there's nothing good. <laughs> that your heart is deceitfully wicked. Oh, that makes me feel so warm and fuzzy. Oh, there's something good in there somewhere. No, there's not. Proverbs, that on your best day you fall seven times, according to the Proverbs, either in thought, word, or deed. So if you think you're having a really good day, you're not. And if there's any good that comes out of you, where does it come from? Every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above. So what's the best we can do if we do something good? Learn how to say praise the Lord instead of praise me or I'm glad you noticed how talented I really am. No. If it's any good or anything that comes out that good, let's give the credit where the credit is due. It's all, it all belongs to the Lord. That makes a person humble. If you switch it around and think it's about you, that'll make you proud and arrogant. And so we find, as we begin our study this morning, that if that was the case in Deuteronomy, the blessings and the curse, let's begin, I can't, it's an exhaustive study if we would try to do all of them. We can't. I'm going to hit on several. So let's go back to the very first one. The very first curse is in Genesis chapter 3. So make your way back there. Of course, this is after Adam and Eve had sinned by listening to Lucifer instead of obeying the Lord. So as we pick it up in verse 13 of chapter three, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field that on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Before this curse, it's in Ezekiel and Isaiah, describing Lucifer. Actually, his body was partly a musical instrument, and it says he was covered um, 
in, in um, stones. And it says that, um, that he was made, this blows my mind, in perfect wisdom and beauty. Now when you think of the devil, do you think of perfect beauty? Now how is he always portrayed? Some gory, no, no, we're talking about the most beautiful creature God had ever made, full of wisdom. And he was the anointed cherub that covered. He went from that position and now a curse is placed on him so that now he's going to be on his belly and eat dust all the days of his life. The very first curse in the Bible is the one that led the rebellion and how he persuaded one-third of the angelic realm to follow after him. He had to be quite a persuader. But they did. And then we find that with the very first prophecy in the Bible concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He is a reference to Jesus Christ. He shall bruise your head. In other words, a fatal wound that's gonna eventually destroy him and you shall bruise his heel. Well, when Jesus was crucified, we're told in Isaiah 52 that he was marred more than any man. The Roman soldiers put a um, blanket over his head. And then they had this game where they would tell the prisoner, now we're going to hit you, and you've got to tell us which one didn't hit you. Because all of us are going to hit you except one guy. And when you get it right, then we'll stop. So they just beat on him. So when it says that he was, he, the enemy, will bruise his heel, that didn't kill the Lord. But Jesus was victorious and defeated uh, Lucifer on the cross. Well, then why are we still here? If the, if the victory was won then, well, this was all part of God's plan. It says his plan wasn't just for Israel. Israel had to reject him so that the gospel could go to the Gentile world. Uh, Romans says when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that implies a set number. Church started when? Pentecost. When is it going to end? Rapture. And the implication is there's a set number of people, of Gentiles and Jews for that matter, that when that number is reached, then the Lord will take out his church No kingdom age yet. We still have to go through seven years of tribulation. Then the Lord will come back. And then he will set up the throne of David and his kingdom. And so even though the victory was won at Calvary, as it says, all things are put under his feet, Jesus' feet. But then it says we don't yet see all things put under his seat. That's what's going to happen. Nothing's going to change it, but it isn't here yet. But it sure is getting close, gang, the way I um, see the world's spiraling down so quickly. So here's the first curse and the first prophecy in, in um, Genesis chapter 3. Um, the second curse is found in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 3. And we read, 
Then to Adam he says, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you will eat of the herb of the field and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now, up to the last hundred years, we were basically an agricultural society. Both sides of my grandma and grandpa's were farmers. And um, that's pretty much the way it was. We've become industrialized and now most of Americans sit in little cubicles all day. But that isn't the way it was for thousands and thousands of years. Men worked by the sweat of their brow. I was, I was thinking of my grandpa when it was 22 below last week. And it was 74 in Phoenix. So just, oh, didn't mean to say that. Yes, I did. <laughs> I thought 22 below. They lived in a tar shack. Two rooms and a curtain separated them from six children. And my grandpa cleared 80 acres with horses. And then they built the tar shack, and then they built the barn. And I'm thinking to myself, 20, this, is, this is up in uh, Chippewa Falls, Kadat area, so we're north of here. 22 below, and he's getting up at 4 o'clock, and he's going to go milk cows. And I'm thinking, I don't think I could do that. <laughs> and yet he had to work by the sweat of his brow, the heat of the summer, and, um, you know, you just have to stand amazed uh, when men were men like that and they could do that. Um, but the second curse, evidently, Adam had it, all he had to do was take care of the garden. Now he had to work by the sweat of his brow. And the ground wasn't going to be helpful. It's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. Now that's important, what I just said. It's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. Isn't this Thursday the 14th? Isn't this Valentine's Day coming up? Uh, You guys are planning on getting your wives roses? Well, you weren't until I just said so. (laughs) Thing about roses is they're beautiful. The bad thing about picking them is is you get pricked pretty easily because there were thorns. Do you know that when it was Valentine's Day before the fall and Adam went to pick roses for Eve, no thorns? It was an easy job. Thorns didn't appear till after the curse, when the earth was cursed. What's your point, Dwight? The second curse in the Bible, the first one was the Lucifer, the second one was the earth itself. Let me show you, well, um, keep your finger here because I'm coming right back, but I do want to show you Romans chapter eight, where Paul deals with the curse that's on this earth right now. Romans eight, Verses 18, let's pick it up there, Romans 8. Paul says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
because the creation itself also being delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The earth is looking forward to a day when it's not cursed any longer. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we within ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope for what does what still hope for what he does not see. But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly await with it with perseverance. This is telling us here that this is not our home and that our real home, the Lord said he's prepared a place for us and that's the eternal one. This one's the temporal one. And let me just say, my friends, you have no guarantees about tomorrow. Um, when Judy and I landed, it was on a Saturday in uh, Arizona. And I didn't realize that uh, a Calvary Chapel pastor had died in Phoenix. And um, all the Calvaries in that area were at a funeral. And um, a John was telling me about it later, um, completely unexpected, 57 years old. And one day he's here, and one day he's not. And that tells me we have absolutely no guarantees about tomorrow, no matter how healthy you think you are. Rabbi Eichmann, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, um, international leader for uh, Jews and Christians to help support Russian Jews, um, get their packages for Passover, and help them uh, get transplanted into the United uh, into Israel. Well, he died this week, 67 years old. I'm 67 years old. Um, how many of you are familiar with uh, Rabbi Honeyman Saint Eichmann, Eichstein, Eichstein? Okay, you've seen him on TV. And uh, he's the one that goes around and gets Christians and Jewish people to work together to help uh, these very, very poor, poorest of the poor, Jewish people in Russia. And all of a sudden, just like that, he's gone. It happened sometime last week. Uh, so my point here as we read through this is our heart should be groaning. Um, and longing, uh, as we wait for it, it tells us to do it with perseverance. But then it tells us that the world itself is waiting in anticipation for this day because it's groaning and wants to be delivered from the curse that was placed upon it at one time. And that will someday be removed. Um, let's go back to Genesis 4. And we'll see if God places curses on people. Uh, Genesis 4, verses 10 and 11. Cain and Abel. It says, um, let's pick it up in verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. 
And then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And I always like to say, what's the answer to that question? Yes, we are our brother's keeper. And he said, well, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now, you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So the first curse, does God place curses on people? Yep. It's clearly laid out that um, um, Cain here had this curse that was placed upon him. God cursed Cain for Abel uh, murdering his brother Abel. Turn a couple chapters to Genesis chapter 12 and get the overall uh, view here of Jewish people and the land in particular. Genesis 12 verse one, now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, do you wanna receive a blessing? Then bless a Jewish person. You wanna receive a curse? Curse a Jewish person. How many of you um, are familiar with the name Bill Koning? He, he was here maybe, he hasn't been here for 10 years. He's a White House correspondent, and evidently, he texted me during this conference. He says, Dwight, I see that you're in Phoenix. Good move, it's cold in Wisconsin. And he says, we gotta talk and get caught up. And so I called him, and he didn't pick up, but the next day he called me. And we talked, we got caught up um, over a period of time of about an hour. And I said, Bill, there's a rumor going around about you. And now that I got you on the phone, I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. He says, go for it. I said, are you Jewish? And it was this pause, not long, but pause. And he goes, yes. And I said, okay, that part of the rumor I found out is true. And um, I said, I was told, blah, 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 that um, um, you're not only Jewish, but you're Levitical and you're Cohen. And... How did this come about? Well, the way I heard it wasn't the way that Bill was telling me the story. His wife's name is Claudia. And she did some research on their name and found out that four other people with the same spelling turned out to be Jewish. So she said, Bill, why don't you get your DNA checked? So he did. And long story short, he's not only Jewish, but he's of the tribe of Levi and he's a Cohen, a part of the of the lineage of of the priesthood. And then that got Claudia thinking, and he said she was in her prayer closet, and the Lord told her she was Jewish. And Bill says, honey, you're Spanish, not Jewish. And she said, no, and the Lord told me something else. The Lord told me to get my mother's ring, I don't know if it was her wedding ring or not, and take the gem off and look at it. 
That's weird. So she goes and gets her mother's ring and takes the jewel out, turns it upside down, and there was a star of David. And so she began doing research on her name. I said, Bill, are you going to tell me that Claudia is Jewish? And he says, we both are. I says, you know what this means, don't you? He says, what? Now I have to treat Claudia even nicer. (laughs) How do you like to wake up one morning thinking you're something and you're really something completely different? So kiddingly, I said to Bill, I said, Bill, it's been a long time. Why don't you come up and um, be a part of our prophecy conference uh, this fall? And he said, Dwight, I would love to. He says, but um, he has access. uh, He's in that room all the time where the White House correspondents are there with Sarah, what's her name? And uh, he says, we'll be in Israel three times this year. If it works out, we're not there. We'll be in Appleton. So I'm hoping that he could make it. What's your point with all that? Well, Bill, I'm going to have to treat you a little bit nicer from now on. And all for the wrong motive. I'm a selfish man and I want all the blessings I can get. But when you, you flip it over and you, you think of the anti-Semitism that's in the world today, what we're hosting, not this Thursday, but the following Thursday, I really encourage you to come out. Um, we have a gentleman, um, uh, Chris, that I can always forget his last name, Uh, called me up, he's a part of our fellowship, but because his wife had an accident, they watched live stream, hi guys. Um, He has a heart for the Jewish people, and he wants to have an evening, it's gonna be open to the public, it's gonna be hosted here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, Chris is going to be doing a 15 presentation on the uniqueness of the, the Jewish people and how unique they are, they're a minority population-wise. But as far as being top of the rung of their profession, almost without exception, you pick a field and you'll find a Jew that's at the top of it. And so he's gonna be presenting that particular aspect of it. And because he knows I love Israel and the Jewish people that have been there many times, he wants me to speak about the history of whose land it really is. One of the reasons for this is January 27th, 2019, two weeks ago today, was International Holocaust Day. It was designated November 1st, 2005 by the UN General Assembly. And according to a poll released two Sundays ago, some 2.6 million British people think the Holocaust is a myth. 60% of Europeans are anti-Semitic, 60%, mostly coming out of all places, Germany. In other words, 5% of the British adults do not believe millions of Jews were systematically murdered by the Nazis. Um, This is anti-Semitism, it is demonic, and it's really the only card that the devil has to play. Jesus said to Israel, he says, you're not gonna see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they have to say that. They're going to say that at the end of the tribulation, 
when I believe they're in Petra, they will call upon the Lord. And that's what Hosea tells us. After, after um, he says, I'm gonna to return to my place until, he's talking to Israel, until you acknowledge your offense. It doesn't say offenses, plural. It says, until you acknowledge your offense. Well, what was Israel's offense? Well, John 1.11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. The one they'd been looking for. Well, right when all seems lost, they're gonna call out upon the name of the Lord, and that's when the Lord's gonna return. You're not gonna see me again until you say, Israel, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah gets into quite a bit of detail about the emotions they go through when they realize for the first time that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah. It's gonna be so overwhelming that it says every family will weep by itself. It won't be a family getting together and weeping, no. The father goes by himself, he weeps. The mother goes by herself, she weeps. They have to be alone to digest that it was Jesus Christ all the time that was their Jewish Messiah. But when they call out, he comes back, and the first order of business is what? False Christ and the uh, false prophet immediately cast into the lake of fire. He binds Satan for a thousand years because he's got to use him one more time. But he'll be let loose. And the good news is after that, he's going to take him and he's going to cast Lucifer into the lake of fire where he will be forever and ever and ever. And I wish I had the rest of the day to say forever and ever and ever and ever. Because he's given me a rough time over the years. But that's his fate. And he was defeated on the cross, but his judgment will come at that time. So um, back to the blessings and the curse. Be careful how you treat Jewish people. Um, Anti-Semitism, like I said, is, is, is off the charts. Let's go to Numbers chapter 22 at this point. When the children of Israel left Egypt, yesterday in men's prayer we were studying all the places. When they left Egypt, they went here, and then they went here, then they went here. Page after pages of all the places they camped during their 40-year wilderness wandering. But right before they get to the promised land, that's Numbers chapter 22. The last one in line before entering in is Moab, and the king's name is Balak. And he is nervous. Let's pick it up in verse one. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because there were many, and Moab was sick and dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the children of Midian, now this company will lick up all that is around us just like an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at the time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor of Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of the people, and called him, saying, Look, a people 
have come out of Egypt. Look, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, come at once and curse this people for me, for they're too many for me. Perhaps I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that whom you bless is blessed, and whom you curse is cursed. Now, Balaam here is sort of an enigma because it talks about, a little bit later, him using sorcery. So was his ability to bless and curse a result of the authority of God? Or was he messing around with something the Lord told the children of Israel never to do, get involved with sorcery and um, mediums and familiar spirits? So if you go down a little bit farther to verse uh, 11 and 12, he brings Balaam and he wants, Balak wants Balaam to curse the children of Israel. In verse 11, look, a people have come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I'll be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with him, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So here the Lord clearly says, no, you're not going. Well, he ends up going anyway. And um, in the book of Jude, in warning about false prophets, he says that they ran greedily in air after Balaam. What does that mean? Well, he was on the take. This was a... He said, well, even if you gave me a whole house full of silver and gold, I can't do any more than what the Lord tells me to do. Hint, hint, hint. No, give me some money. And so he was on the take. Boy, could I get sidetracked here as I look at the church and questioning the motives of especially the prosperity teachers and what they're really into it for. Better not get sidetracked, I better stay tracked here. Let's switch gears and make this personal this morning. I'm going to have you turn to John, Gospel of John, chapter 3. And let's make this personal for you and I. John 3, everybody's familiar with John 16. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, we can all quote that. 25 words. 17 and 18, I think, are more powerful. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, he who believes in him is not condemned. Now catch this next part. But he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Do you realize that you are cursed and that you are condemned? The whole world is condemned unless you've given your life to Jesus Christ. Good place for an amen. What a lot of us haven't really allowed ourselves to uh, get into, we'll get back to this church that was mentioned between services that believes there are many different ways that you can get to God. Um, I quoted this the first service. Maybe I quoted this one. Pope Francis, this week, meeting with the leader of the Muslim world, are getting together 
so they can form a one world religion. Gang, that should cause your jaw to drop. How late is it that, this, that uh, we're talking not only one world government because of the dumbing down of the gospel and people like Rick Warren going full speed ahead trying to get us all to be one great big happy family. This is where it's all headed. So now we got both of them. We know the Bible clearly teaches there's gonna be a one world religion. Good place for an amen. But it also teaches there's gonna be a one world government. Another good place for an amen. What's gonna cause this to happen? I have no shadow of a doubt what's gonna cause this to happen. It's gonna be the rapture of the church. And we talk about it sometimes glibly, but make it a reality for a second. People left behind when hundreds of millions of people are here one day and gone the next. We already have the game players in place to come in to give answers for this. Second Thessalonians 2 says they will receive a strong delusion that they will believe the lie. What happened to millions of people? The lie. And so the Antichrist slides into his position, but he's in bed with the one world religion, at least for the three first three and a half years. Dave Hunt has always said, what will bring about this, and it will be instantaneous. There has to be order immediately, or there will be anarchy and martial law everywhere. I mean, I'm just talking common sense here, that when the rapture happens, that's what's gonna take place. It has to take place. And it's gonna happen, I believe, very, very quickly. But to allow this to settle in, that if you have friends that are not born again or believe that there's another way that they can get to heaven apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, they're deceived. And it should uh, shake us up a little bit to think about some of our own buddies that we used to hang with that aren't saved. I did that this week. When it was really, really cold and the ice was coming down and all you could do is sit in your house, I said, I'm gonna start calling up some old buddies and see how they're doing. So I did. And I'm really glad I made contact with one in particular. My my best friend growing up found out he's a believer and found out his wife is more of a strong believer and his kids are really actually serving the Lord. And I told him, I said, David, you're totally making my day to hear this. On the other hand, I had tracked down another one and he's about as far away as you can get. He's a multimillionaire and um, um, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but he's not walking with the Lord. So here in John three sixteen, let's turn from there, understanding that the world is under a curse, and let's go to Galatians chapter three, picking it up in verse ten. Galatians 3, verse 10. For as many as are under the works of the law are under, what? The curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just will live by faith. Yet the faith is not of faith, but Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse. Who? Jesus, who became a curse for us, for it is written, this is a prophecy now, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So now, Galatians tells us, now remember, when we started our study, what was the second curse? The first curse was on the serpent. What was the second curse on? The ground. And as a result of the ground, what did it bring forth? Thorns and thistles. So the second curse in Genesis, God cursed the ground and it brought forth thorns and thistles. If you're taking notes, uh, write down Matthew 27, verse 29, where it says, when they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on Jesus' head, mocking him. But in reality, the curse was literally being placed on Jesus on the cross. We like to say here for every New Testament teaching, Old Testament picture, or vice versa. Here is the curse, thorns. Being placed, cursed is every man who's put on a tree, and then to have him crowned literally with what identifies the world as being cursed, a crown of thorns. My friends, that's not a coincidence. If Jesus didn't go to the cross and take that curse upon himself, the curse would remain on you and me because we are already condemned. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. again, if you're taking notes, about the resurrection, Paul says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins, and the curse still remains. There was a curse placed upon Joseph's bloodline on a man named Jeconiah, but the Lord found a way around it by going through the line of Mary through Nathan instead of going through the line that was cursed through Joseph. Isn't God's ways far beyond our ways and past finding out? Oh, they're trapped. Got a curse on the bloodline. Well, the Lord just went right around it, switched it at Solomon, took it through Nathan. Well, he also has found a way to deliver us from the curse of sin by allowing the unthinkable his only begotten son, who never knew sin, who was never separated from his father throughout all eternity, he found a way around it and he allowed the curse to come on his own son. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. He took my sin and he gave me his righteousness. How he got around that. And how great of a God do we have? We'll close with this. Romans chapter eight. I think it sums it up when we realize all that the Lord has done for us. Romans eight verse 31 says, what then can we say to these things? What can we say? What can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? For if God did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not deliver him up for us? How shall he not 
with him also freely give us all things. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. We still sin. He's a high priest who continually is interceding for us on our behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written? For your sake we are killed all day long and we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life or angels or principalities or powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor hype, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, how grateful we are that from Genesis to Revelation, it clearly tells us that this planet has been cursed because of Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in the beginning. There are many in this world today that mock us because we believe in an Adam and an Eve or the flood. But when it comes to just having common sense and just looking at the scientific proof of a worldwide flood, Lord, we stand in awe knowing that you honor your word and that is inerrant and um, completely and totally reliable. Lord, we're so grateful that you tell us the beginning from the end and you tell us the truth about our human nature, that we are under this curse and what can we say to these things except that we're grateful and we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace that you've extended to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this morning for any that might be thinking that they're gonna get around this somehow by entering in through good works or keeping the law or some other way, that it would become very, very clear to them that this whole world and every person on it has already been condemned and the only lifeboat out is what you accomplished on Calvary's cross. And trusting and believing in that finished work and that work only is what's going to take the curse away. And so, Lord, we offer the sacrifice of praise, and uh, we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. For your goodness and your grace that you've extended to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this morning for any that might be thinking that they're going to get around this somehow by entering in through good works or keeping the law or some other way that it would become very, very clear to them that this whole world and every person on it has already been condemned and the only lifeboat out is what you accomplished on Calvary's cross. And trusting and believing in that finished work and that work only is what's going to take the curse away. And so, Lord, we offer the sacrifice of praise and uh, we say thank you 
In Jesus' name, amen.